there, you are listening to IWG Radio, the place to be for all of your wellness needs. Hosted by functional medicine physician, Dr. Nicole Rivera, and functional medicine nutritionist, Brooke Scheller. We just want to take a moment to thank you so much for listening and just let you know that any of the information that is provided is strictly for an educational resource and is not intended to diagnose or treat any conditions. The lifestyle interventions discussed should not be used as a substitute for any type of conventional medical therapy. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Integrative Wellness Radio. My name is Brooke Scheller. I am the Functional Medicine Nutritionist at Integrative Wellness Group, and I'm back here with Dr. Nicole, and we are going to talk to you a little bit today about limes. And I think this is a great topic because I think that limes can be a pretty scary thing to think about. But I think it's also something that's very difficult to diagnose and difficult to really get a lot of clarity around. And so we wanted to just bring up some information to you today, especially if you're somebody who has maybe had a previous Lyme's diagnosis, or if you're somebody who might be experiencing some of the symptoms that are common to Lyme's disease. So, um, you know, I'm going to just open up the floor to Dr. Nicole to really give us a really good overview of what Lyme's is. Hey there, everyone. Um... So Lyme's disease is something that a lot of us hear about, you know, possibly getting exposed to Lyme's through um, having a tick bite, you know, with that potentially leads to a bullseye rash. And that is something that, you know, opens us up to the possibility of developing Lyme's later down the line. Um, You know, the thing with Lyme's is Lyme's is actually a spirochete infection that affects our cells and you know causes limes to then get within the body um, which usually ends up residing within our connective tissue and in addition to that there are some other things to take into consideration that can open you up to limes and those really have to do with a lot of the co-infections so at one point in practice i did have a patient who reported that she had cat scratch fever as a young child. And that is a Bartonella infection. And Bartonella is a very, very common co-infection with Lyme's. So it's not always that they came at the same time, but unfortunately, a lot of the bugs that are carrying Lyme's are typically carrying other types of co-infections like Bartonella as well as Babesia. And, um, you know, and obviously thinking about the name cat scratch fever, obviously it was um, proposed that you would get that by getting scratched by a cat. But what they're finding now is that you could actually get cat scratch fever from other types of bugs like mosquitoes and ticks that are infected with Bartonella. So overall, when, you know, when I hear Lyme's or if somebody has been diagnosed with it, I really start thinking about what are the possibilities for other co-infections because unfortunately Lyme's doesn't like to necessarily live alone. So there's definitely other things to consider. Before we dive a little bit further into the co-infection thing, I want to navigate back to where you spoke about the possibilities of mosquitoes, fleas, ticks, those types of things because I think especially living in the northeast, we have a ton of ticks, a lot of deer ticks, and it's very common in this area, but we think that we have to have a tick bite to be infected. And I think some people might think they have some symptoms, but they can't really relate to 
ever having that bite and that bullseye rash. So elaborate more on how else they might be infected. Well, it's exactly what you said. There is a strong possibility of infection through mosquitoes. Um, as well as other types of bug bites. Um, there's not as much research on things like chiggers or fleas, um, but there has been cases that that has been the primary exposure. But I would say nowadays, um, you know, ticks are a part of the puzzle, but the mosquitoes are a very big part of the puzzle. So don't always, uh, you know, rule out the possibility of limes because you have not had that tick bite or you have not had that bullseye rash because many people, when I ask, don't report ever having that. I think it's about, the statistic is 80% of people that actually have limes report never having a uh, bullseye rash. And just as a disclaimer, this isn't meant to scare you, but meant to kind of empower you to ask more questions if you are experiencing some symptoms that might be kind of those classic Lyme's type of symptoms, um, that that could be a route to explore even if you haven't had necessarily that tick bite. So mentioning some of the symptoms, I think this is where it gets a little tricky for people because they can really overlap with some other common things, obviously things like fatigue and brain fog, but what are some of those other real classic Lyme symptoms? Well, definitely the fatigue, um, you know, sometimes even uh, flu-like symptoms can be part of the puzzle. Not always though. Um, a lot of brain fog, joint pain, you know, just kind of general aches and pains, which unfortunately I think so many people are dealing with and we blame it on maybe we sit too much for work, uh, you know, we sit in a car because we commute, um, you know, past injuries because we played sports and sometimes we're totally missing the boat, re not realizing that this could be a more serious issue. Um, but those are some of the top things that you're going to see. You know, when you actually get into getting your routine labs done, some of the things that you might see with somebody who has long-standing Babesia, which is actually a co-infection with Lyme's, is a really severe iron deficiency. Uh, so they might be deemed iron deficient anemic. They might actually have changes in their hemoglobin, uh, things like that. And then also a very common byproduct of Lyme's is actually having calcium magnesium deficiencies as well. So those are some things that you also might be told by your primary care physician just by getting your routine labs of, oh yeah, your iron's a little bit low, you're technically anemic, and blowing it off thinking like, okay, maybe I'm just not eating enough iron. Um, but you know it can progress over time and you become more and more iron deficient and nothing you're doing is working. So I think one of the, the most difficult things about Lyme's is that it's really difficult to diagnose. It's not like a simple blood test that can really give you all the information. And so I want you to tell our listeners more about the process behind that because they might have been tested before or they might, you know, have been diagnosed or maybe improperly diagnosed. So why don't you elaborate a little more on that? Well, I mentioned earlier that with Lyme's it hides in your connective tissue it definitely can even hide in the nervous system as well. And when I say nervous system, I really mean like your brain, your spinal cord, your nerves. So that is one of the reasons why sometimes people experience brain fog, but then also can experience mood changes, um, irritability, anger, um, because the limes can start to affect their brain tissue. But I would say the connective tissue is one of the first place, places that it will live. And that, again, correlates back to the joint pain, um, achiness. So 
when you're doing a routine lab test like the Western blot through Quest or LabCorp, you can definitely miss it because Lyme's does not live in the blood. So if you are somebody who has had labs done and it did show up in your blood, that means the infection is very uh, in high abundance in the body, but it also has most likely been there for a significant period of time. But typically, you will not be able to test for Lyme's until you actually uh, treat it. So obviously, you don't treat it blindly. There are other things that you will see in someone's labs that will be indicators to kind of lead you down that path to say, I think that this person does have Lyme's. So let's start to treat some of the infections slash co-infections. And then six weeks into treatment, we will do a test called Igenix. And the Igenix lab is really great for testing, not just for Lyme's, but also testing for the co-infections as well, like the Babesia, the Bartonella, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you'll get the full comprehensive picture with that. So what are some of those things that we're going to look at in the labs? Because I think that this is really like the take-home message for people that if they're seeing a doctor, they might be able to say, you know, have you tested me for some of these other co-infections or viruses? So let's elaborate a little more on those. Yeah, definitely. So um, one of the most common things that I find that people that do have Lyme's or we suspect that they have Lyme's is they've had mold exposure. So this is not something that's very routinely run. Um, it is, you know, I wouldn't say it's custom, but, you know, somebody needs to be really looking for mold in order to run the test. Um, but it is a, a test that can be done through LabCorp, which is fantastic because that's most people's in-network lab. But it's called TGF Beta 1. And the TGF Beta 1 is something that will give you an indicator if you have been exposed to mold. And mold is one of the most debilitating things to the immune system. So it opens you up to various infections, not just Lyme's. And that's where uh, viruses come into play. So it's very common that someone who does have Lyme's also has maybe the herpes simplex 1, which is cold sores. Maybe they also have herpes simplex 2. Maybe they have Epstein-Barr virus. Unfortunately, a lot of people have that in their system. Um, a very um, common co-infection is mycoplasma, which is what we call walking pneumonia. So technically, you could be walking around with this and not know you have it. Um, another one is a different type of herpes virus, which is called HHV6. Um, and another big one is called parvo. And parvo is something that's very common in dogs, but uh, humans can have it in their system as well, probably because you let your dog lick you in the mouth. <laughs> I've made that mistake. Um, but with that being said, those are some really common viruses that will also be in the body in conjunction. So getting those viral panels actually gives you a lot of clarity around, you know, is my immune system extremely compromised and has it opened me up to all of these different infections? And in addition, you know, does that open me up to the potential of also having limes on top of that? So looking at those viral markers, looking at mold exposure, looking at the white blood cell count, which is a parameter of the immune system, Typically, when somebody gets below 3.5 with their white blood cell count, I really start thinking, you know, your immune system is extremely, extremely compromised, and there is a strong possibility of Lyme's being in the picture. Um, but I have seen people that have had normal white blood cell markers that have Lyme's. So I don't want to say that that's a definitive. 
uh, typically it just means chronic Lyme's, meaning it's been in the body a long time by the time that white blood cell count marker starts to really come down. Um, and then on top of that, because the immune system is compromised from the mold, and also there can be heavy metals in the picture as well, which is also very debilitating to the immune system, then we will commonly also see gut infections and yeast, bacteria, parasites is a really, really big one. Um, most people that have Lyme's do have some level of intestinal worms. Um, there's tons of different parasites out there, but um, unfortunately it is very difficult to diagnose parasites as well because 20 minutes after you have a bowel movement, um, and especially if you're doing a bowel movement in preparation for a stool test, a lot of times, the not all, a lot of times, most of the time, the um, parasites within 20 minutes of the bowel movement leaving the body, any parasites will self-destruct. They auto-lyse is what it's called. So by the time your sample actually reaches the lab, you are going to show up that you're clear of parasites. So the people that get this testing done and parasites do show up means they have a lot of parasites in the gut and they probably have them for a long time. And typically we're treating for parasites and then we can kind of see them a little bit better, correct? Exactly, yeah. And I ask a lot of questions about um, parasites in my consultation. So, you know, I usually will ask, um, do you have a history of grinding your teeth? Do you have TMJ or jaw pain, which... If they, have, if they say no for the grinding of the teeth, but do have TMJ, chances are they're grinding their teeth. They, they just don't know. Um, do they have hives? Do they have eczema? Do they have itchy skin? That's another big part of it. Um, also, if they've had a past uh, itchy rectum. I know a lot of kids experience that, and a lot of times it's because they have different types of worms. Um, but I do ask about their stool. I ask, you know, do you have anything in the stool that looks slimy or stringy? And a lot of times they say no, but then as we embark on treatment, then they report back saying, oh yeah, now I see it. <laughs> so parasites, um, you know, in reality, when they're in your gut, they're happy as can be. They're in the perfect environment. Yeah, they don't want to leave. Yeah, it's warm. <laughs> it's great. They're eating all your they're, food. They're eating Yeah, well. <laughs> they don't want to leave. So why would they? So that is something really to know is typically parasites will not leave unless you are taking the appropriate supplementation to get them out. So we can't live in a bubble all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> it might be cool if we could. Um, and so we're probably getting exposed to these things all the time. Um, again, things like mold maybe in our home. Uh, or, you know, out and about if somebody has a virus and we're contracting a virus. And then again, things like bug bites and all of that, you know, we can only be so cautious. So, um, you know, I definitely um, want to talk about some things that can be like take home messages for people of how they can really protect themselves in, in a safe way from some of these things. Um, and I know that like using some of these bug sprays and things could be really toxic. So I wanted you to give some of maybe your favorite tips on helping to, for people to protect themselves against some of these things. Of course. Um, well, first and foremost is, I mentioned before, it, not everybody who gets bit by a tick or gets bit by a mosquito will get an infection. The thing is, is if your immune system is functioning optimally, then you really don't have to worry about it. But if your immune system is not functioning optimally, then that's when these things become a problem. So you have to take into consideration of, you know, I, I always tell people, you don't know what you don't know. 
So when you get testing done and you get a baseline for where your body is at, then you have more information about, okay, where is my immune system at now? Or what are things that I need to change or modify so I don't eventually get these types of infections? And making sure that you're clear of heavy metals is huge. It's super important. And unfortunately, people might be like, what is she talking about? So things like aluminum, things like mercury, things like cadmium, arsenic, you might be thinking, where would I ever get exposed to these things? There's mercury in fish. There's mercury in the silver fillings in your teeth. There's aluminum in your kitchen. Most of your bake pans, most of your uh, Teflon has aluminum in it. There's aluminum in every antiperspirant. So the antiperspirant that you're probably using on a daily basis. So unfortunately, we live in a world that we're exposed to these toxins and they're not harmless. They are very harmful and they will get into the body and they will stay there and they will debilitate your immune system. So you need to kind of have a baseline to see, is this something going on? And that is a huge part of the puzzle. So when it comes to the mold, you know, if you have been exposed to mold in the past and you're like, I'm fine, don't think because you've been exposed to mold that you would have developed either asthma or some type of respiratory or sinus issue. So if you don't have those things, that means you're deemed fine. If you know that you lived amongst mold or you lived in an old home that smelled a little musty or you had flooding from some storm, you know, take into consideration that that could have potentially affected you and your immune system, especially if you are someone who's getting sick often or if you're someone who is, you know, just kind of dealing with, you know, chronic gastrointestinal issues because, you know, when we think of infections, we kind of think of like, oh, sore throat, flu-like symptoms. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's because you're just getting infections in another body part, which definitely can be your gut because unfortunately everything we eat has some level of bacteria on it. So those are things to, to take into consideration is, you know, making sure you can rule out that mold has never negatively affected you and you don't have heavy metals in your system. And these are different tests that you can access through functional medicine practitioners. So even if you're having symptoms or not, it's good to have that baseline. But then kind of going into the world and just knowing what you can do now is, you know, definitely making sure that you are using different types of bug sprays that are safe. And you can use this for yourself, you can use it for your pet, um, but one of the best things is going to be cedar oil. And uh, one of the products that I was actually recommended by my vet was uh, called Wonderside. It was W-O-N-D-E-R-C-I-D-E. And that was a great product. She recommended it, obviously, for the dog, which has been really useful because, obviously, dogs do carry fleas and ticks into your, our homes, which kind of open us up to these infections. But um, the wonder side, it's pretty much cedar oil. So you can spray it on yourself as well. It's greasy. Um, but there are other types of bug sprays out there um, through Badger, which is a brand you can find in health food stores. And then there's another one um, called Milk and Honey, which you can most likely find on Amazon. We also sell it here at Integrated Wellness Group. But using those because a lot of the other uh, bug sprays are pretty toxic and also will compromise the immune system. Yeah, you have to think like if they're killing the bugs or making the bugs want to stay away, like what are they doing to us? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah. But, you know, there are some really great oils out there like the cedar oil that bugs do not like. <laughs> yeah. So that's a great way to go for sure. So how about people who are experiencing some of these symptoms? Is there anything that you would say makes might make them 
you know, worse off, make their symptoms flare up, how they can maybe even help manage their mm-hmm. symptoms? Yeah, well, um, for those of you listening, if you do know Dr. Klinghart, who is a Lyme specialist out in um, the Seattle area, you know, I did a lot of, um, or I followed a lot of his work, and that's kind of how this became such an interest to myself. But um, he said some really key things um, through, you know, a lot of the um, seminars that I did with him. And one of the things that he said was, spirochetes, which cause limes, have been in our environment for centuries. So why is lime such a problem now? And why is it causing so much chronic illness and, you know, causing these uh, neurological issues, you know, cr- uh, causing rage, causing anger, causing mood swings? And what he said was not even just the spirochetes, but other infections like the ones we talked about today we're pissing them off. <laughs> and I was kind of like, where is he going with this? And um, he said that over the past 20 years, that the amount of radiation from wireless devices, our iPhones, our Bluetooth earpieces, our Wi-Fi, it has increased by 30 million percent. And he even repeated himself. He's like, that was not an error, 30 million percent. And I found that to be mind-blowing so these things you know we've made these advancements with technology and wireless devices and you know you can have your phone on you literally every minute of the day anybody can access you You can get internet from anywhere even if you don't have data on your phone because literally there's uh, wi-fi routers everywhere we're living in wi-fi soup as you say yes (laughs) yes and this is something that you wouldn't really think too much about and especially a lot of us don't understand what we can't see or tangibly touch so this is something that is really disrupting our microbiome and it's really disrupting the nature of these different types of bugs and um, the fact that we are never not exposed to Wi-Fi, the cell phone radiation, you know, if you're using the microwave in your home, then it is literally putting these different pathogens in an uproar. And it also shows why it's becoming so difficult for people to recover from things like candida or parasites or whatever they've been infected with. You know, our route is antibiotic treatment. Some people it works, some people it doesn't. But a lot of times they're having a lot of symptoms, you know, that are reoccurring after the fact. And again, it's because we are never giving our bodies a break from the the radiation. And if you are someone who's sitting there with, um, you know, your uh, Fitbit on your arm or the new crazy watches, I don't even know, they connect to everything, Mm. you know, you're honestly constantly giving yourself doses of radiation from that so again not to be scary but it's really something to consider um stop sleeping with your phone next to your head it's okay put it on airplane mode (laughs) um i understand people have kids and they get nervous Mm -hmm. but um you really need to try to detach for a little while at least you know interesting enough um obviously dr klinger he's been doing this 40 years and he talks about his really severe cases that, you know, fly in from all over the world to see him, he actually recommends for them to uh, paint their homes with um, different types of graphite paint that actually block cell phone radiation and uh, different types of microwaves. 
And, um, you know, that's, it's pretty extreme, but these are just some people that literally are debilitated and cannot function. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's definitely something that we talk to people about and give them the resources. Um, and you know, another side note is if you are someone who is maybe living in mold, um, that is definitely going to exacerbate your symptoms and make your immune system more compromised. But on top of that, the uh, Wi-Fi and all of the uh, electromagnetic waves actually feed mold and it causes it to produce more mycotoxins. So there was an experiment done and what they did was they did a petri dish of mold in the regular environment, aka Wi-Fi soup, (laughs) Um, and then they did a petri dish of uh, mold and they isolated it from all microwaves. And what they found was that the one in the regular environment actually multiplied in one week by 600%. So I think that's why mold illness is becoming such a big thing. Because in the past, you know, I don't think that there was much talk about mold. It's like, okay, you were exposed to it, let's move on. Mm -hmm. But now I think it's becoming so much more problematic because we are feeding it and, and irritating it and causing it to multiply by having as much radiation around us. And I think it's important to understand that we're not talking necessarily about mold that is growing on the wall that Mm -hmm. you can see. And of course, if you've been affected by a storm or something like that, then you might have a little more indication on that. But mold can be growing behind cabinets, Mm -hmm. behind walls. It can be um, in the basement. It could be in the attic. And you in your don't, ducts, your air ducts. Right. You don't need to necessarily be smelling musty smell. You don't need to even be noticing that there has been water damage anywhere. If water intrudes into the house or let's say your office or whatever the space is, if it's not dried within two days, it can actually start forming mold. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that being said, if you are someone who's experiencing a lot of these symptoms, it might not hurt to seek some type of uh, investigation in your home to see if that's something that might be affecting you. Well, and before you just said office as well, and I think this is something to think about, is we think of mold and we might automatically start thinking of our home, but honestly, I feel like schools are a big culprit for mold exposure. You know, I I treat many teachers and, you know, they have their summers off and they feel really good and then they get back into their work environment and they immediately start having symptoms again. And they're like, you know, I can I can look at the drop ceiling above my head and I see it. I see the mold. And unfortunately, it's just what is, you know, what's happening with our kids? Our kids are overweight. You know, our kids are sick all the time. The ear infections, the sore throats behavioral issues, and I'm definitely not blaming all of that on mold, but, you know, this can be a big part of the puzzle. You know, one of our elementary schools locally was shut down for two months because the mold was that bad. It took them two months to remediate it. So, you know, and it's just, it's something that we might be getting exposed in our workplace or even, you know, our schools as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up too because for a lot of us, we spend probably the same amount of time or let's say maybe a third of the time that we're spending our lives is in our workplace, at Mm -hmm. least eight hours a day for some people more and that can definitely be posing a risk to your health as well. And then when it comes to the Wi-Fi, I think it's just pretty eye-opening, the Wi-Fi and the cell phones because I think we don't necessarily think about it. We see this new watch or this new device and we get excited. We think it's, you know, the, the next way to help our success 
and we don't necessarily think about what some of those consequences are for our actual health. So it's taking small steps and saying, you know, maybe I will put my phone on airplane on mode. airplane, or I'll move it to a place that it's not really close to my bed. Mm-hmm. And just starting with some small steps like that and, and cutting back because I think it can be overwhelming for people to think, oh my gosh, you don't want me to use a computer. I work mm-hmm. on a computer. Mm-hmm. I have to have my cell phone available for my kids. So really it's making those small changes and you know just starting to see how your life and your symptoms change mm-hmm. with that as well. Yeah. And even unplugging the router at night, you know, it's like if you unplug the back of it at night and then you plug it back in in the morning, there's no rebooting. You don't have to do anything. It's just, you know, being able to kind of shut that down for a little while is is really useful. So it doesn't have to be, you know, you're you're making massive, massive changes. Um, it's just making those small steps, like you said, Brooke. Great. Well, I think that's all we'd like to cover for today. Um, If you have any questions, we would be more than happy to answer them on a strategy call with you. And thank you so much for listening. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and feel free to write a rating and a review. Thank you so much.